So half of their operating budget comes from this offering, and our, our goal this year is a half million dollars. And so, Now, as we are together the next few weeks, I said we're going to talk about what we are as a church, what are distinctive things about us, the 32nd elevator statement. State, statement number one is we believe in strong biblical theology that is reinforced by the Reformation and our Reformation heritage. Statement number two is we're a missional people. Number three, we are a community of people and believe in relationship. And number four, we're transgenerational. Today we're missional. Talking about being a missional people. So glad for the Harrises to be here. Um, it's interesting to ask yourself, what does your culture value? What does your unit, family unit value? What does your peer relationship group value. Uh, we value Heisman Trophy winners. We value future Hall of Famers as a country. We value NBA champions. We value well-known entertainers, actors, and even bad movies. We value. It's interesting what other countries might value. This country, Armenia, is a country of three million people. The national sport in Armenia is chess. Chess is mandatory in, in the middle school years. The, if you're on the national chess team in this land of 3.1 million, you never buy a meal. You normally don't pay for your hotel stay. Uh, women flock to you and throw themselves at you if you know how to play chess. Many men here are thinking, young men are thinking, how can I get to Armenia? Um, <laughs> This is the national icon. His name is Tigram Petrosian. Tigram Petrosian uh, in 1963 had a grueling 24-hour match against the reigning world champion Mikhail Botviknovic from the Soviet Union. Armenians don't like the Soviets, and he won. It was a national death celebration. And today they will tell you that those of us who are 50 and over can tell you where they were when President Kennedy was shot in Dallas. They said, likewise, we can tell you where we were in 1963 when Tigran Petrovian became the world chess champion. Now, half the boys in um, Armenia are named Tigran. So what do we value? What, what do we value? Well, the Bible says that we should value people who have a long obedience in the same direction and who serve Christ. We should value people who go out and expend their lives. And, and, and as we do that, it enables us to be bold and confident and strong. Listen to Hebrews chapter 11. He's gone through the hall of fame of Old Testament believers, and he says this, The, the world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains and in caves and holes in the grounds. These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised, i.e. Messiah. God had planned something better for us so that only together with us they would be made perfect. Next chapter, therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also throw off everything that hinders in the sin that so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, 
fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. And so you come away from this and you say, well, well, we are to be people who understand people have gone before us, we're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, and, and, and that we're to fix our eyes on Jesus. Great cloud of witnesses, primarily looking to Christ. And then he talks about the discipline of God and how God loves us and cares for us enough to discipline. And he says this, therefore, strengthen your feeble arms and your weak knees. Make level paths for your free feet so that the lame may not be disabled, but rather healed. And, and so, so this morning we're going to talk about this great cloud of witnesses and people that have gone before us. And I'm, I'm going to just do a character sketch. I've been looking forward to this. This uh, I'm going to talk to you about uh, the, the father of American missions. His name is Adoniram Judson. Adoniram Judson. If we're, to make, if we're to strengthen our hands and make level paths for our feet, we've got to value those things that are valued in the mind of God. And the things that are valued in the mind of God are men and women who live with faithful obedience year after year after year. Adoniram Judson did that. Background sketch. He was born uh, in 1788 in Massachusetts. His father was a congregational pastor. Grew up in a pastor's house. Um, Ended up denying the faith. Went to Brown University. Graduated at 21 with a master's degree. Um, As he taught children for a year and a half, then decided to become a playwright. The, the, the young man that he walked with in college that turned him away from faith into a type of Unitarianism that did not define the reality of God was a man named Jacob Eames, E-A-M-E-S. And so they were best friends. And so Judson becomes a playwright in New York. He decides to go visit his uncle one weekend, and he has to spend the night at an inn on the way to visit his uncle. And he checks into the inn, and the proprietor of the inn says, there's one room left, but it's next door to a young man who is deathly ill. In fact, I don't think he'll make it through the night. And so he lay in bed that night, and he heard the screams and the moans and the scurryings going back and forth in the room next door to him. He's got very little sleep, got up the next morning, he's 22 years old, he's getting ready to, to, to leave, and he says, just cash, what happened to the young man last night? And he says, well, he died. And he died. And he says, I see that, that you're from New York, and he says, well, I went to Brown, so the young man who died was from Brown University, or Brown College at that time. And Judson said, what was his name? And the man said, his name was Jacob Eames, his friend. He's dead. And so Justin got, got on his horse, and he didn't go to his uncle's house. He went to his dad's house, the pastor's house. And he said every time the hoof of the horse would hit, he said, he's dead. He's dead. He's dead. He got to his dad's house and said, Dad, I'm, un- I'm undone. And so he became a, a seeker, a questioner, and he went to Andover Seminary as a special student, not as a believer, but somebody investigating the faith. Andover was an Orthodox Bible-believing seminary that had kind of departed from the Unitarian drifting Harvard. That's why they were formed as a kind of a response to Harvard's theology. So he's at that university for four months. He studies, he questions, and he comes to faith in Christ. So he goes to Andover. Um, a couple years later, he meets a young woman named Anne Hasseltine. 
Judson says, I want to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And, and so he meets Anne. She's a, a well-to-do, wonderful young woman. And he asks her if she would like to be his wife. Now, before he does so, this 24-year-old writes a letter to his potential father-in-law. And the dads, those of you who have daughters, this is the letter that Judson wrote to his potential father-in-law. Just listen. Listen to the bulletin. I have now to ask whether you can consent to part with your daughter early next spring to see her no more in this world. Whether you can consent to her departure to a heathen land and the hardships and sufferings of a missionary life. Whether you can consent to her exposure to the dangers of the ocean, to the fatal influence of the southern climate of India, to every kind of want and distress, to degradation, insult, persecution, and perhaps a violent death. Can you consent to all of this for the sake of him who left his heavenly home and died for her and for you and for the sake of perishing and immortal souls? For the sake of Zion and the glory of God, can you consent to all of this in the hope of soon meeting your daughter in the world of glory with the crown of righteousness brightened by the acclamations of praise which shall redound to her Savior from heathen saved through her means from eternal woe and despair? He said yes. It's amazing. I mean, amazing. They get married in February of 1812. Two weeks later, they get on a boat to go to India. They're going to Calcutta. And they're at sea for four months. And that's their, at this time, they believe in infant baptism. You know, Baptists love to tell this story. We just love to tell this story. They believe in infant baptism. As they're on the boat for four months, they started an assiduous study of the Bible. Particularly, they were challenged in the issue of baptism. When they landed in India, they were confirmed Baptist. They went to the local church where a guy named William Ward, a contemporary of William Carey was, and they were baptized by immersion as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, which helped drive some of their support in the U.S., I am sure. So they were baptized. From that point, they, went to, they, were, they were said, well, we're going to go to places the gospel has not been preached much at all, just a little bit, a place called Burma, which is you know, to the west of India. So she's pregnant, and they get on the boat to go to India. They hire a Burmese midwife. As they make the voyage, the Burmese midwife dies. And then Anne goes into labor. Uh, she births a child who is dead, a stillborn baby. The only one there to help her is her husband. I just can't imagine that. No midwife, nobody there. I mean, Judson's never been around birthing units. He doesn't know what to do. The baby's born dead. They bury him at sea. They wait a few weeks, they go into Burma. So they're, they're in Burma. That's a very difficult place, to say the least. Um, they're there a few months. They get settled. And then a year later, they have a beautiful baby boy born, Roger Williams Judson. Roger Williams has been a famous Baptist. So they're flying their Baptist colors. Roger Williams Judson, a beautiful boy. The love of their life, seven months later, he dies. Um, and then six years after arrival, six years after he arrives, Judson baptizes the first person that's come to faith in Christ. Labors for six years. I want you to hear that. Six 
years. He became carried by one year. Six years laboring, translating the Bible, loving people. He would set up a little preaching station that looked like a Buddhist place. And he would preach Christ, invite people in day after day after day, six years. And then we go through a, a, a time. I want you to get this. I, I call this his, his difficult phase. <laughs> really difficult phase. His wife, whom he dearly loves, becomes sick. So she leaves in August of 1821 and has to go back to the U.S. to recuperate. And he is without her for almost two and a half years. And just stop there. When I read the life of, of, of Judson, Judson was not a loner. Judson loved people. Uh, I, I like people. And I've got to tell you, a lot of times I'm getting ready to leave here and I'll call my wife. Now that our kids are gone, she's the only one at home. We don't even have a dog. And we have our favorite dog we've ever had. He's an invisible dog. He costs no money and he's always there for you. Anyway, we, we've had many dogs. We don't have a dog now. So I, I will call my wife and I'll say, where are you? She says, I'm here. Where? I says, when will you be home? In an hour. I says, well, I'll be home in an hour. I don't go home to an empty house. I, I just don't like it. So to think that my wife would leave me in Burma, Burma, for two and a half years while she recuperates, just, just it, 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 it destroys me. She goes back to the U.S. She's received as a hero and was a wonderful spokesman for missions. But he's in Burma for two and a half years without his bride. She finally feels better. She comes back. Um, a few months after she gets back, Britain and Burma go to war over, over something and and, and Judson is accused of being a British spy. He says, the Burmese didn't get, we've just been in two wars with Great Britain in the last 40 years. We're not British spies. We're kind of not buddies right now. He's accused of being a British spy. He is in prison for 17 months. His wife becomes pregnant right before he's imprisoned. He's imprisoned in a very small place with several other Europeans and their guards were called spotted faces. I don't know why they were called spotted faces, but they were. But the spotted faces were men and women, or men, who had been condemned to death because of murder. But they could serve as guards and not be executed if they would be guards. And so I'll say, we'll, we'll be prison guards. So these were, these were hardened criminals who were sentenced to death. To say the least, there was no prison fellowship. There was no Jimmy Stewart coming in every week with brownies. It was hard. At night, they would put him in chains and put a rod behind his knee and lift him off the ground to where only his shoulders and his head was resting on the ground. And that's the way he slept month after month after month. It's amazing to me. In the middle of all that, his wife leaves her home and, and rents a hut. Really, it's a tiger cage. And she would barter and beg with the prison guards to feed her her husband so he would, wouldn't die because he got very little food in the middle of that she becomes deathly ill has this little baby that she's trying to nurse a little girl named maria and so that they were the prison guard took a little compassion on him and, and judson would take maria every morning and he would wander into a local village chained and he would plead for a wet nurse to feed his little girl Day after day after, let me tell you, day after day, 17 months. 
Finally, the war ended. They needed a translator. They let uh, Judson out of prison. He's with his wife for a, a few months. And, and then, um, here's just the timeline. So he's, at, he's in prison. He gets out of prison in November. Less than a year later, his 37-year-old wife dies. A few months later, his little two-year-old girl dies, his only child. And then in July, he hears that his daddy's died. And he goes into what his biographies call a several-year, three- to four-year depression. Um, he, he leaves the mission station. He lives at the edge of civilization. He writes back home to all of his sisters, his mom, to Brown University. He's given him an honorary doctorate. He says, I renounce my doctorate. Please burn all of my correspondence. And unfortunately, most of them did. Uh, he, he asked the mission board to cut his salary in half. He lives on just a handful of rice every day. At one time in his life, during this period, he dug a grave and for 40 days, he sat at the grave and he visualized the decomposition of his own body. It was in, he was in a bad place. He was in a bad place. Uh, he, he started reading deep mystic writers, uh, Fenelon, The Imitation of Christ by Thomas Akempis. More about that later if I have time. It, it just, but you're sitting there, so this, this dear man, and he's in tiger-infested country. And the people, the Europeans knew him said, he will never come back. This, listen. Unknown to Judson, though, there was a Burmese deacon. What was his name? Kodwa, who who hid in the forest every day with a loaded gun, watching over Judson, and Judson didn't know it. So Judson's in tiger-infested area where they say he's going to die, but unknown to him, there's a brother in the Lord with a loaded rifle getting ready to shoot any tiger that comes close to Adoniram Judson. And I thought, how many times in our lives have we been in the wilderness and a brother or sister in the Lord has been standing there with a loaded rifle to shoot the devil? We need the body of Christ. What's interesting is that in 1831, about three and a half years later, Judson gets a letter that his brother, who for years had denied Christ, has died, but before he died, a year before he died, before he got sick, he professed faith in Christ and gave evidence of a true and lively faith. That seemed to snap Judson out of his stupor, his depression. He came out, and the next few years are years of ministry, growth, and the church of Burma grew. And so that's, that's Judson. Let's go back to 1834, I think we are. Uh, in 1834, there, there's a woman named Sarah Boardman who becomes wife number two. He marries three women. Sarah Boardman is um, a missionary in Burma. Her husband dies in Burma, and she stays, which I just stopped. That's amazing to me. Uh, a woman in that day and age whose husband dies in Burma, she stays. She stayed. So she stayed. She's no Judson. Judson, she married. They're married for 11 years. They have eight children, five of whom survive childhood. So they have eight, eight years of, of, of tender marriage. Uh, Sarah Boardman 
and then she dies. Let me read you this account of her death. This, 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 uh, this stuff may not get you. This gets me. So she's, she's sick, and when you're sick in those days, you would go to sea. Fresh air, get away from the germs, supposedly. It says this, on the evening of the 31st of August, my wife appeared, this is Judson writing, my wife appeared to be drawing near the end of her pilgrimage. The children took leave of her and retired to rest. I sat alone by the side of her bed during the hours of the night, endeavoring to administer relief to the distressed body and consolation to the departing soul. At 2 o'clock in the morning, which to obtain one more token of recognition, I roused her attention and said, do you still love the Savior? Oh, yes, she replied. I ever love the Lord Jesus Christ. I said again, do you still love me? <laughs> she replied to the affirmative by a peculiar expression of her own. I don't know what that means, what she said, but she did. Then give me one more kiss. And we exchanged that token of love for the last time. Another hour passed, life continued to recede, and she ceased to breathe. For a moment, I traced her upward flight and thought of the wonders which were opening to her view. I then closed her sightless eyes, dressed her for the last time in the drapery of death, and being quite exhausted with many sleepless nights, I threw myself down and slept. On the awakening in the morning, I saw the children standing and weeping round the body of their dear mother, then for the first time, inattentive to their cries. Fell down, probably fell down and slept next to his dead wife. Wakes up, the children are crying. Buries her at sea. They're on the way to the U.S. to recuperate. He continues on to the U.S. His only time he ever went back to the U.S. during his entire time in, in, in Asia. He gets to the U.S. and he's received as a hero. Books have been written about him. He's totally uh, unexpecting of this. And while he's in the U.S., he's 57 now. He meets a young, a young girl named Emily Chubbuck, who's 29, and she's, she's written several books. She's a pretty famous authoress, and he says, you should write for the glory of God, not for the popular press, and he gets to know her, and they kind of form an attachment, and he ends up marrying her, and it was kind of a scandal. She was 57, or he was 57, she was 29, but they get married. Uh, they go back to Burma just a couple weeks after getting uh, married. She has a, a, a baby a year and a half after they're married. Um, they, they, two of the three children he left greet him. When they get back to Burma, one had died. They live in a place that she called the Bat Castle because there were bats everywhere that flew all over the place. But she said these were the happiest days of her life. Just three years later, later uh, Judson becomes sick. He goes to sea with a friend. She has to stay back because she's nine months pregnant. Um, and while he's at sea, he dies on April the 12th, 1850. His wife, Emily, gives birth to a baby boy. Ten days after her, his daddy dies, the boy, Charles, dies the same day he's born. So the baby dies. And then four months later, listen, four months later, Emily receives word that her husband has been dead for four months. And this was very slow. So she goes back to the U.S. and takes care of her parents, and she dies of tuberculosis three years later. That's the life of Adirondack Judson. It's just amazing to me.
It is absolutely amazing to me. And I, one thing as I read this, I, I, thought about, I thought about Judson. I thought about these people in our prayer guide this week in our world offering for missions. I, I don't want us to come away saying primarily, what a great man. I, I want you to come away saying primarily, what an obedient man who is supported by the same Savior and filled with the same Holy Spirit that I am filled with and these people are filled with. And that either we go or either we send, but we all pray. We're part of a mighty movement of God. It's called the Great Commission. So I want to very quickly give you some lessons from the life of Adoniram Judson. I've got six. I'll try to get through them pretty, pretty quickly. Lesson, lesson number one. This is in the bulletin. Lesson number one is belief in the absolute goodness of the ruling Lord, whose name is Jesus, who graciously orders all of our, all of our days. This led to staying power. In fact, there's a, there's, a, there's a little, I think it's up here, there's a little statement he wrote to his first wife a week before they were married. And I thought, this encapsulates Judson's theology. He's only 24. But he, he lived this way. He says, God is waiting to be gracious and is willing to make us happy in religion if we would not run away from him. God is gloriously good. And he can be trusted. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, he is for us. There's a little quote from a book I read this week that's wonderful called Dangerous Colonist. says, the devil wants you to begin to question the presence, goodness, faithfulness, and grace of God. This is his most powerful weapon. It has the power to hurt you and your ministry. You see, if you have come to doubt the goodness of God in your moment of need, you won't run to him because you will tend not to run for help to someone you have come to doubt. See, I look at Judson's life and his, his, the trumpet call of his life is, behold the goodness of God. It's amazing to me. In all of his loss and all of his pain, behold the goodness of God. In 1831, he wrote to his second wife, three years before they were married, she just buried her husband. And, and he says this, as to your beloved, you know that all his tears are wiped away and that the diadem, the crown which encircles his brow, outshines the sun in heaven. Little Sarah, their dead daughter, and the other, who forgot the other child's name, have again found their father, not the frail, sinful mortal that they left on earth, but an immortal saint, a magnificent, majestic king. What more can you desire for them? While therefore your tears flow, let a due portion be tears of joy. Wow. Says, yeah, yes, you grieve, but don't grieve like those who have no hope. Let some of your tears be blessed be the name of the Lord. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And so I see throughout Judson's life, time after time, I believe in the absolute goodness of God, the shepherding Savior who loves him. Number two, Judson believed the gospel was true and the cross was the only way to eternal life. This gave him staying power. You know, wh why, why be in a prison for 17 months sleeping on the back of your head and your shoulders if you didn't believe Jesus was Lord and he was the only way to be saved and people without him went to an eternal judgment? 
Why did his second wife not go home? Nobody would have faltered for that. She stayed because they believed in the exclusivity of the gospel. The only way to be saved, brothers and sisters, is through the work of Christ. That's why we have people who go to very difficult places, who go to the ends of the earth. That's why we sin. That's why we give. That's why we need to cut back on some of our gift giving this Christmas so we can give a half million dollars to Lottie Moon. Every person here. Thirdly, he married well three times. Three times. He married well. All three of his wives were godly women who shared his passion for Christ. In fact, his third wife was led to faith in Christ by reading a short biography about his first wife when she was a child. All three. I just, as I thought about this, I, I, I thought, you know, if I had one word of advice for young people, if you are to marry, you marry people who love Jesus. That's the key. Everything else, communication, you know, uh, you're going to struggle with communication, just you will. But I mean, just everything else is secondary. Just Jesus. I was talking to a young lady this week, and I said, well, how's, how's it going? And she says, well, you know, she talked about her husband. She said, she said ah, this is going to sound really corny, but he, in his pursuit of Christ, makes me want to be a better woman. I said, that doesn't sound corny. That is music to my ears. Marry well, live well. Fourthly, I just want to hit this. He, he was gospel-driven, and when he veered from that for, for a brief period, it led to near destruction. Uh, Judson went into a depression, and he, in his depression, started reading what I call deeply pietistic writers. And, and, and it led to some unhealth. He got, he got out of it. Let me, let me explain the difference. I want you to read men and women who bleed the Bible. I want you to read men and women who bleed the gospel. See, people who love the gospel are aware of their sin, but they gaze in awe at the cross and they glory in grace. Conversely, some people who are called mystical are deeply aware of who they are and they give a passing glance at the cross. Now, some of you go, what are you talking Read good people who build the kingdom of God in your heart by glorying in Jesus. Read well. Think well. Fifthly, Judson was a lifelong learner and a tender lover of Christ. You, you read his letters. He, he, he was a lifelong learner. He, he loved life. This is what his wife wrote on their first anniversary. This is wife number three. This is only, what, uh, three years before Judson dies. She says, this has been, the first anniversary, this has been far the happiest year of my life. And what is in my eyes still more important, my husband says it has been among the happiest of his. I never met with any man who could talk so well day after day on every subject, religious, literary, scientific, political, and yes, baby talk. They just had a baby. And I just thought, here's a guy who loved life. 
sixthly, he lived with a sense of the eternal. He wrote this to a candidate coming to the mission field. He said this, remember a large proportion of those who come out on a mission to the east die within five years after leaving their native land. Walk softly, therefore, death is narrowly watching your steps. And I, I, I've got to tell you, we live in a culture that never says that. We live in a culture that says, man, you're going to live forever. It's no big deal. We ought to look at each other all the time and say, hey, man, one Sunday closer to glory. One Christmas closer to glory. This may be our last Christmas. Let's live like it. Let's live with passion and calling and energy. Let's live as unto Christ. I just don't hear anybody anywhere saying, life is short. It will be over very soon. Life is a vapor. It's gone. I watched the Heisman Award last night just for one minute. Some of these great athletes, they're only 35. They look horrible. They have aged horribly. I don't know what they do, just they're horrible. And I thought, thank you, Lord. George Rogers? Really gotten old quickly. I mean, come on, we're going to die. That's why, isn't isn't it glorious to be called, to be part of something that is bigger than us and our family and our political party and our state and our nation called the kingdom of God? Isn't it great to be part of a, of a sending body who sends people out? I mean, these, these people here, these people are from our church, basically. And they run the gamut. Wonderful. All wonderful people. I just, I was looking at they run the educational gamut. We have two people here who went to Duke and one who went to Gardner-Webb. So we run the gamut educationally, Craig. I mean, really, these are great people. Oh, what a joy to send them out. Listen, we need to sit back and say, God, what can I do to give to Lottie Moon to get people like this in places where people can hear about Jesus and be saved? You and your sovereignty have seen fit to birth me in a land where I hear the gospel frequently. I want people who've never heard to hear. I want the people of West Bengal to hear. I want the people in Khartoum, Sudan to hear. I want the people of Southwest China to hear. I want the people of North Africa to hear. That's our challenge. Well, let's pray. Lord, thank you for the... uh, ability to sit back and, and just walk through quickly the life of a, a man who went out. And Lord, there are people who go out all the time, everywhere, in every situation, and we don't 
have books written about them, but you know them. And thank you that your call to us is a call to be faithful. Faithful. Whether you've planted us in Erie and Jaya or Wisconsin or Miami or Berlin. You, you, to be faithful. Lord, and I, I just pray that you would call out people from our body and that as they call out, the rest of us would understand we are to hold the ropes and send and that all of us are to pray and stand in awe of the glory of Jesus. Blessed be your name, Almighty God. I, I pray this Christmas season that we would not lose the awe. That when we sing these hymns and think about the glory of Christ, Emmanuel, God with us, we would be moved. And then we will stop and say his name shall be called Jesus because he will save his people from their sin. That's the message. The fulfillment of the ages has come. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, who bridges the gap between guilty, sinful man and a thrice holy God has come. His name is Jesus. So thank you for that, Lord. May we be a sending agency. In Jesus' name, amen.